Hi, everyone. I'm Eden Lane, and I'm happy to sit in as guest host at the table for a conversation and an exchange of ideas with these panelists. Let's get right to topic one. The 2022 Colorado primary ballots are out. This will be the first primary election to include the brand new 8th Congressional District. And with 44% of the voters registered as unaffiliated, it's expected to be one of the most competitive district races in the country. In the leadoff chair this week, we have Eric Sonderman of Colorado, Pol Colorado Politics and the Denver Gazette. Um, if you look at recent results in that area, even though it wasn't unified, it's a very narrow margin um, for their results traditionally anyway. So how do candidates sort of predict what messages will resonate with this new group of voters? Good question, Eden. Uh, it's a heavily unaffiliated district, as your question indicated. We'll see how many of those unaffiliated voters choose to participate in the primary. There's mm -hmm. only one primary on the Republican side. The Democratic candidate is set with uh, State Representative Yadira Caraveo being the Democratic candidate. This was designed to be the prototypical competitive district. I'm a believer in competitive districts, so credit to the redistricting commission for creating this district. Uh, I think the issues, all of our elections these days have become federalized. The issues in this district are not wholly different than the issues in another congressional district in Colorado or congressional district halfway across the country. The Republican candidate will be talking about crime, will be talking about inflation, will be talking about President Biden's deficits, etc. The Democratic candidate, Caraveo, will be, try to be talking about other issues because obviously she'd prefer not to to, to dwell on those. The whole race comes down, in my mind, to who the Republicans nominate in their, in their primary. If they nominate a Jan Kuhlman, the mayor of Thornton, or a Barb Kirkmeyer, now a state senator from Well County, previously a county commissioner, I think they have every opportunity to pick up that district and might be a slight favorite, just given the national tailwind behind Republicans. If they nominate Lori Sane, former legislator, now a county commissioner up in Well County, then the whole balance shifts because she is from that other wing of the party that Republicans have gravitated to too often because it makes their hearts go pitter-patter in June, but they're just not electable in November. Next, we have Denver Post columnist Krista Kafer. Krista, the 8th District is an important opportunity for both parties. So what is your take on what will happen. It could be an awesome pickup if they pick the right candidate. So let's take a look at the four candidates that we've got. We've got uh, Alcorn, who doesn't even live in the district, so uh, not eligible as far as I'm concerned. Uh, Jan Kuhlman, the, the mayor, as well as uh, the state legislator, former county commissioner, Barb Kirkmeyer, both really solid, poly uh, really solid picks, both pragmatic. Jan Kuhlman might be uh, just a little bit more moderate. She may be uh, but, but Kirk Meyer's great, too, and they're both pragmatic. They're both seasoned. They could do a really great job. Um, some people at this table refuse to call Lori insane, Lori insane in their column. Um, I'm not beneath that, so I'm going to go ahead and say that myself. Um, not because I came up with it. Somebody else said it. But um, she is a fringe candidate. She says fringy things. She's, uh, she does not believe that the, uh, the election... Um, went for, for Biden, and everyone knows that it did, and there is no evidence of a stolen election. So I, I think if you go with a fringe candidate, um, if you go with the candidates that, honestly, the Democrats want them to go with, uh, the fringe candidates, um, the red wave that will break across this nation will be a, a blue wave here in Colorado. Um, 
we need to have solid people at every single position, whether it's our statewide candidates, uh, Heidi Ganahl, Joe O'Day, Pam Anderson, solid picks, and then again at the district level, going with those solid, pragmatic, moderate Republicans who can get the job done, who do not have fringe beliefs, who have not, uh, don't ha haven't, haven't given material to the other side to use against them. So let's hope they, they choose well. Also on the panel tonight is Scott Martinez, managing partner for Martinez and Partners. Uh, Scott, this new district could have a major impact this election cycle right from the get-go. So what are you watching out for during their first primary? Um, well, great question. And when I think about this district, I think about the word sophology. Sophology is the study of political data and election results. And it doesn't take a sophologist to understand that this is the most competitive district in America, where Democrats have won this district in years past by two points, Republicans have won it by two points. This is the place where all political consultants are gonna be looking to see what messages resonate, what um, they should be saying to voters. And in particular, this district is 39% Latino. That's something that is unique uh, for people who are crafting messages to focus in on with laser-like precision. And what is um, great about this district is that it's not just um, a Latino voter base, but up and down the 8th Congressional District, the Democrats are nominating three Latinas. So at the Congressional level, level uh, Dr. Uh, Caraveo is the Latina there. We have Yolanda Ortega and Rosanna Reyes who are the Latinas running for the CU Regent seat in District 8, and then at the State Board of Education, Rhonda Solis. Three Latinas, three seats, can't wait to see what happens. Completing our panel this week, we have Ed Sealover from the Denver Business Journal. Um, Ed, this district includes various communities along the I-25 stretch that, that has been combined for it. So how do you see um, business impacting the the primary and the results or even solidifying this this new district that we have? Well, I think, well, I agree with Eric that this is largely a nationalized debate. I think if there's one business topic that could be high up in this district, it is the issue of oil and gas drilling. Uh, this is a, an area that we're seeing a lot of that, and we're seeing that conflict between more homes going into it, which is why we have a new congressional district, and the idea that this is also a, a very lucrative basin to drill into, um, which makes Jen Coleman's um, presence in this race especially interesting. She is actually actually uh, an executive with an oil and gas company, as well as being the mayor of Thornton. I think if she were to come out of this primary, I think it might actually almost localize this race a little bit more. I would imagine the Democrats would probably try to use that against her. Uh, Jan could talk about the economy more in that way. Although certainly Barbara Kirkmeyer uh, is no slouch when talking about oil and gas development, uh, as she was during her time in the Will County Commission. But I think that's the issue. I think you're also going to see a lot of talk about transportation. This is an area of the state that is seeing increased backups on I-25 and where the uh, the business groups and the county commissioners up there are increasingly active saying, give us money to expand I-25 uh, in the face of not getting it right now from the Polis administration. So um, I think if we're going to talk business, that's what we're going to be talking about. And hopefully some of that discussion breaks through above just the national rhetoric. Interesting thoughts there. <laughs> Another hot topic when it comes to Colorado's 2022 primary elections, Democrats rallying to support a MAGA candidate. Super PAC Democratic Colorado is spending over $800,000 this week alone to boost the efforts of Representative 
uh, Ron, ha Ron Hanks. Um, the hope is that he will defeat GOP candidate Joe O'Day. O'Day is predicted to have a much better chance at winning against incumbent Democratic Senator Michael Bennett. You alluded to this. So, Krista, uh, some people might see this as trying to hijack um, uh, the other party's primary. Is this a good strategy or is this just confusing to voters. Well, now that people have found out, it probably is not a good strategy. But <laughs> I first I got to say that with his sophologist comment, right. Scott, <laughs> Scott should really be in the copal seat. That, that, <laughs> that, is, worth, that is worth noting. Um, but uh, yeah, they've been found out. So the strategy isn't quite, they've been a little sneakier, perhaps it would have been a good strategy. It is underhanded. Um, it is sneaky. Uh, it is, however, not beyond the pale. What they've done is not illegal. Um, they're, what this says is that they're afraid of Joe O'Day. They're afraid that Joe O'Day will beat Bennett, and I think he's got a good chance of doing so. So they're pushing this fringe candidate, Ron Hanks, and saying, yes, he's too conservative. You know, he's too awesome for Colorado, basically, <laughs> to, uh, to these primary voters who are foolish enough to, to pull the, I won't say pull the lever, but we don't really do that anymore, uh, you know, to uh, fill in the dot for, for Ron Hanks. And if you're that dumb, um, I guess you have it coming. On the other hand, mm -hmm. uh, I, would, I think it would be more honorable uh, to put their money into the candidate that they like and allow Republicans to freely choose uh, a good candidate of their own. Hmm. Scott, do you agree that this reveals the, the sense that in the Bennett campaign or the Democrats in general that he might be weakened in this cycle? Well, my initial reaction is just to roll my eyes with the righteous indignation <laughs> by the Republicans saying, why are you interfering in our election? when I remember Republicans doing the exact same thing with Romanoff and Bennett back mm -hmm. years ago. It happened before, it's gonna happen again. Um, what I see is a need for greater transparency um, as opposed to um, uh, uh, shaking our fist in the air that it's happening. I'd like to know who's paying for it. I'd like to know what their intentions are um, because I actually think voters are smart. They um, have the ability to look to see who's paying for what and decide where they uh, land on the issues, where they land on, uh, on the spending, and I think we should give voters more credit. So I, in order to give them credit, though, we have to allow them to see the facts and that we need greater transparency in our campaign finance laws. Ed, is this a, an effective move, or does it just sort of elevate the profile of the uh, opposition's name in a way that will come back to hurt them? It's an effective move if the Democrats believe, and as they could based on the last two uh, primary elections, primary general elections, uh, that unaffiliated voters are not coming out to vote. Um, you know, it's a subject worth discussing because in 2016 we passed a law saying unaffiliated voters can vote in either primary. The idea was to moderate the primaries on both sides in this. Unaffiliated voters have been a big fat flop in the two elections since then. Now, if they stay home again, this is going to be another election of going to the right, going to the left. Actually, just going to the right because the Democrats don't have any serious primaries this year. Um, but if unaffiliated voters come out and they see these ads, and maybe it'll even inspire them to vote in the Republican primary, since there's really, um, except for a few state house districts, not a lot of competitive Democratic primaries out there, this could backfire. They could be looking at this saying, hey, you know, you're right, he is too conservative. And I, as an unaffiliated, do not want to see that. I'd rather see a matchup of Joe O'Day, Michael. Bennett and someone who I could stomach either way on there. So the Democrats are playing the history card in hoping that this is going to be effective in getting Ron Hanks on the ballot. Unaffiliated voters are the ones who could tell them that's wrong. 
Eric, we've already established that both sides do this and have done it for a long time. Is it fair play and is it effective? I identify with a lot of what's been said by my fellow panelists here, uh, a, a lot of smart stuff. Uh, Scott may roll his eyes here at my righteous <laughs> indignation, but I'll be, right, <laughs> but I'll be righteously in indignant uh, nonetheless. Yes, it can be effective, although I think Ed just hit the big question mark on that effectiveness related to unaffiliateds participating here. Uh, it is underhanded, as, uh, to steal Krista's word, it is sleazy. Uh, I could also add it is immensely cynical, but that is politics, and it is particularly politics circa 2020. Uh, neither side in, this, uh, in these fights are political virgins at all. Uh, there, there's, no, there's no political virginity to be found on either side of the aisle. So I'm not surprised um, that this is going on. In fact, I quite frankly anticipated it. I wouldn't be surprised if it extends down to the Secretary of State's primary mm -hmm. between Tina Peters and Pam Anderson as well. I think the only thing I would add is I hope voters, and I tend to give credit, more credit to the voters' intelligence than lots of political consultants do. And I hope voters will sort this out and see it for the cynical play that it is. And I would also just add, it is also going on over in the Western Slope in the Lauren Boebert district. Mm -hmm. And as much contempt as I have for Lauren Boebert as a congressperson, you know, I think Republicans and unaffiliated voters over there should be able to sort out that race without um, Democrats going to register as Republicans or unaffiliateds temporarily just to vote in that primary. So the underhanded cynicism flows all directions. Last Monday, the Denver City Council voted in favor of the expanding housing affordability policy. Now, this policy mandates that developers with 10 or more units in a housing development dedicate 8 to 15 percent of the housing to income-restricted tenants. So, Scott, um, under this plan, the, the units of income-restricted uh, that are dedicated to income-restricted uh, tenants are for 99 years. Now, can that be counted on by those residents after... We've seen the Park Hill conser conservation easement dissolved so easily, or is this a little bit different? Um, I do believe that um, the citizens who will participate in this um, income-restricted housing program can count on this. Um, I, I have uh, great faith that the um, law being laid out um, will stand the test of time. Um, I also believe in the city council's um, duty to make our city livable. We have uh, other laws that uh, rely or uh, create livability like minimum wages um, that set a minimum standard. And this particular law, um, in my mind, that relates to building of units really uh, sets a minimum floor uh, for the standards that we want our builders to work with, just like a fire code. We want a fire code in place for these units that are being built. Uh, we want it to be safe, not just for the unit, but for the, the neighbors around it. And this affordable housing uh, law makes our community more livable in the same way that a fire code does. Um, we should be arguing about how many affordable units we have, what percentage, what rate, is it too high, too low? 
Um, but it's a conversation um, that is worth having. And I have to commend not just the city council, but the developers um, who are um, having this conversation because they've been working at this for years. And it's not a silver bullet. It's not perfect for everyone. Um, and there's a, a lot more work to do. But I appreciate the conversation um, and, and hope that this uh, means more units for, and more livability for our citizens. Ed, there's always um, resistance to things like um, you know, rent stabilization, that sort of thing. So what, what sort of impact will this have uh, on businesses' willingness to launch new housing developments, knowing that this is something that they're going to have to account for and budget for, really, for 99 years? Well, I, I think Denver is such a hot city right now that I don't think you're going to see a slowdown in building. Maybe if there's a, a national building company or two that say, well, I'd, I'd rather concentrate on Austin or Nashville because they don't have these uh, restrictions, that's one thing. But people are going to keep building here. I think the question is, how much is this going to affect the overall rent rates? And, and remember, a recent study from Ojo uh, showed that we are the most expensive country, uh, city in the country that's not on a coast right now for housing prices. Um, and and, and the question is, you've got these 8 to 12 percent of units that are going to be uh, at below market standards. How much are developers going to have to raise the costs of the other units to get them up? I mean, yes, you are going to be creating uh, affordable housing for some. And the bigger that the development is, the more affordable units they're going to be there. But that has got to be offset, you know, not by developers saying, well, that's nice. We just won't get as much. That's going to be offset by the other prices going up. So while we are helping out kind of some of the lower uh, classes, lower income classes right here. Uh, and, and frankly, in some cases, even some of the middle income classes, it's not going to be uh, a panacea because other people will be paying for that. It's interesting that he mentions that because I, I'm aware of projects in New York, for example, where um, the affordable units are constructed in a different way, in a less desirable location, tucked away so that everybody else who pays a premium for living there it's not in my backyard kind of thing. How do you see this playing out in Denver? Will it be any different? Well, I know Ed's wife sometimes comments that Ed and I share a brain. <laughs> and we don't, see, we don't see every issue identically, but on this one, we're, we're very close. We also share initials, so <laughs> you can make of that uh, what you will. Uh, no one questions the honorable intent behind this. And the statistic quoted about the most expensive housing market not on a coast is dead on correct and, and, and sad to say. Uh, that said, somebody pays the bill. You cannot repeal, you can repeal a lot of the laws, but you cannot repeal the law of supply and demand. Uh, and somebody is going to pay these bills. And if the intent is so honorable, why stop at eight or 12%? Why not make it 20% or 50% or 80%? Uh, obviously, that was a product of some compromise, but there will be a cost shift here. The costs aren't going away. It will just be a cost shift from these lower income residents to other residents whose rent or mortgage payments or whatever will be going up as a consequence of this. The only ultimate answer I can think of, and this is as intractable a problem as we as a society face, the only answer I can really think of is you have to increase housing supply. Right now, the demand is higher than the supply. That's why costs are so high. Until you address the supply side of this equation, you're not addressing the equation. Krista, is this an effective tool to address that equation of 
housing supply and access? It may be affected, but is it fair? And, and that was my first thought when I looked at the policy is, is it really fair to force the other tenants to subsidize the, 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 the 10% of, of, of tenants? And what if you're the person who's just outside of that income level and now you're paying more rent? Uh, than you would otherwise be. That That's not fair. I, it seems to me that the best way to handle this, is, as Eric was saying, is to open up the supply. Are there areas in the Denver metro area that can be opened up for, uh, for more housing units? Um, are there things within the law that are preventing the building of housing um, units? Are there uh, other barriers to entry into that housing market? Um, rather than forcing other people to subsidize other people. I, I just don't think it's fair. We have a little bit more for Denver. A judge has overturned the city of Denver's decision uh, to reverse Pinkerton's private security license. Uh, the decision was made after an unlicensed Pinkerton guard shot and killed a man during the 2020 protests. So uh, I, I know that we don't have a whole lot of time left and this topic deserves a lot more of our attention, but just quickly, if we could all share our thoughts on on this new decision from this judge? Look, what this came down to was two words, according to the Denver Post. Uh, the idea that uh, Ann Herr was in this saying that Pinkertons uh, couldn't be, license couldn't be pulled here. This is about an individual's decision. Um, and I think it just speaks to the clarity we need in the laws we are passing. Um, if there's anything that comes out of this, it's not a wringing of our hands over what happened. It's a reminder that we have to be very careful in what we are writing in the law uh, because a judge mm -hmm. may interpret that someday. What do you think of the impact of this decision? I think it was decided on a technicality. I don't think we ought to draw broad conclusions from this. David Goldberg, the judge, is as fine a judge as Denver has. I tend to trust his judgment. We have one attorney at the table here, Scott, and so I'll stop talking and we can get to him in a minute. <laughs> Krista, how do you see it? You know, I just keep thinking about the man who died. Yeah. Um, he was an innocent man, um, a man in the wrong place at the wrong time, in a, in a difficult environment, and, and a person who made a really bad choice. I don't think he got up that day and thought, you know what, I think I'll kill an innocent man. But he shouldn't have been there. He shouldn't have done that. Mm. Um, do you hold the Pinkerton agency accountable for that? And how do you hold them accountable? How do you hold the individual who shot accountable? Um, how do you, I guess, Grieve the person whose life was lost. It's a tough choice. Scott, sometimes the law is decided on technicalities, and it is important about how it's written. So what's your take? Um, well, the law is technicalities. That is exactly it. Um, and let's take it back to exactly what Chris said. This is a human issue. There are no winners here. Somebody died. Um, uh, this person's, uh, the security guard, uh, the the press involved, everybody lost here. Um, but let's go to the technicality, let's go to the law real quick. There are three parties involved. There's Pinkerton, a subcontractor, and uh, this private security guard. In this chain, the, the court said there, we're not gonna have liability for this, um, for this individual back up to this, this uh, company, um, as Ed said, because uh, these terms, his and her, um, up, up in this one statute, create liability only for a person. In, this, in 2022, we are talking about pronouns, his and her, that change the direction of this case. And if th the judge said, 
if this word, if the word his was just used, we could have found liability because companies uh, are, are a um, uh, don't have gender pronouns, and when that when those gender pronouns uh, don't exist, it can ha it can be applied to this amorphous entity. So. If Ed's exactly right, let's get down to precision in language. Let's have a confrontation of how our language today meets with our words um, that existed over the past and really uh, get down to precision um, in how we craft our laws. Great insights. We're going to the favorite part of the show for many, but we're going to do a bumper sticker version of your disgrace of the week, starting with you. The GOP silence, particularly now that we have the public January 6th hearings and the silence on the part of so many Republicans as to what transpired that day, what transpired in the lead up to that day, the culpability of our former president, et cetera, et cetera. That was a big bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. How about you, Chris? I'm going to give it to the mainstream media. You had an assassination attempt on a, a Supreme Court justice mm. by a, an abortion supporter who shows up with a bag of weapons, and a lot of the press didn't cover it, or they covered it on page 20. Had that been a you know crazy MAGA guy going after a liberal support, uh, Supreme Court justice, they would have covered it uh, every minute of the day. Scott? Colorado Avalanche, disgrace of the week. They showed no mercy onto the, <laughs> to the Oilers. They just destroyed them. <laughs> Disgraceful. Ed? The same psychopath that Krista mentioned, but I want to take it from the perspective that it needs to open our eyes uh, and that law enforcement agencies, when the abortion decision comes down, need to protect against this kind of violence, just as we are talking about how they need to protect against the violence against the two other branches of government that we saw play out last year. Well, we're almost out of time. If we can say very quickly something nice. Let's go Avalanche. Liz Cheney, thanks for being so courageous. Congratulations to the Colorado Youth Advisory Council. They just passed a bill helping kids. Congrats to the business community and progressive groups who combined to pass the bill, putting $600 million into the Unemployment Insurance Trust Fund that Governor Polis signed this week. Well, I'm glad we didn't have to skip something nice. But that does bring our conversation to a close for this week. Thank you, panelists, for sharing your insights with us. And catch us next week, same time, same place. But in the meantime, share your thoughts about commenting on our YouTube live stream or by emailing cio at pbs12.org. And let us hear your thoughts on these topics or any others. Well, for that matter, uh, I just want to say thank you for continuing this program here on PBS 12. And for everyone at PBS 12, thanks for watching. I'm Eden Lane. We'll